At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Sundance Now Doc Club, the new streaming service for everyone who loves documentaries. Discover unforgettable films like The Queen of Versailles, The Staircase, and The Weather Underground. To get a free 30-day trial, go to docclub.com slash gabfest. That's D-O-C-C-L-U-B dot com slash gabfest. And by ZipRecruiter. Post your job to over 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. That's ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. And by Trunk Club. Answer a few simple questions about your look, style, and size and receive a trunk full of great-looking clothes that fit perfectly and make you look amazing. Only pay for the clothes you keep and shipping is free. Go to trunkclub.com gabfest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for July 3rd, 2015, the Killers and Rapists edition. We just had a big debate about whether it should be the Rapists and Killers edition and to settle on Killers and Rapists edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. We have a special show this week because John Dickerson is not here. And John is, is in Aspen. I guess he's being held hostage in Aspen. Uh, and As because, happens often in Aspen. It's yeah. tough there. Because John is being held hostage, I think he's doing a panel just as we're taping. We have brought in special guest Gabfester Matt Iglesias, who is the executive editor of Vox, formerly our colleague here at Slate. Dearly, dearly missed. Although we're not, we're not colleagues at Slate anyway. No, we're but we, a, we miss him nonetheless. <laughs> we, miss, yeah. we miss each other. <laughs> there we go. It's like this is that experience of like, oh, we're not there. Matt None of us was is your there. favorite person to have lunch with. That was always what I would hear about My, Matt. I love. I always loved. I, I well, this is Emily Bazelon, of course, of the New York Times Magazine. She's also in Washington today, so we have all of us in the studio. It's true. I loved. I. I don't know if this is what your role is at at Fox, but at Slate, I always. You were just my favorite person to go just bounce anything off of. You're the most bounceable person I've ever met. Just about. Well, thank you. Idea. Nice. I actually, I just eat lunch like twelve times a day now. It's really. I'm getting really fat. Yeah. But oh. there are many ideas bouncing <laughs> off you. Constantly. The ideas happen. Yes. On this week's GabFest, we will talk about the Supreme Court. Emily Bazelon will bring us a grand unified theory of the Supreme Court, I hope. Do you have that? Yeah, his name is Justice Anthony Kennedy. Okay. And we have been waiting for the day that someone could explain Greece to us, and that day has come because Matt is here. So Matt is going to explain Greece and all of Greek civilization, such as it is, such as it still is to us. And then Donald Trump has been fired by NBC, by Macy's, by Univision, Probably by somebody Surely else. Someone else would else. like to get but into that But he's more popular group. than ever. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about uh, Donald Trump 
and why he is surging in polling around the Republican presidential race. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, Vox is the hot media brand everyone's talking about. We're going to get the secrets of Vox. You're going to reveal the secrets of Vox. All the secrets. For Matt Iglesias. Which is weird, using Slate Plus to to reveal the secrets of Vox. That's That's Slate's secret. Slate is so clever in that way. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get Slate Plus by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Uh, one quick other announcement before we start. So our show is all sold out. Our show at Sixth and I is also sold out. So we won't see you there if you don't have tickets already. But there is If a, you do, we're looking forward to seeing and you. If you do, we're looking forward to seeing you. There is an outward. Slate's LGBTQ blog is doing a live show in New York on July 13th. And that's going to be Brian Louder, Mark Stern, and June Thomas. And they're going to have two special guests, including Evan Wolfson, who led the gay marriage, the marriage equality fight the architect of the legal theory behind it, and then Ted Allen of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and Chopped and All-Star Academy, who's a very delightful person on TV. I don't know how he'll be in a live podcast. But June and Mark and Brian will be amazing. We can vouch for that because they are awesome. So if you are interested in these issues, it sounds like a great show. Yeah, I think I'm going to go. It's at City Winery in New York on Monday, July 13th. You can get tickets at slate.com slash outward. And Slate Plus members get 30% off their ticket purchase. That's slate.com slash NYC outward. Emily, the Supreme Court wrapped up one of its its busiest, its most dramatic terms. Although I think we I feel like we say that all the time, but it really felt like it was this a was big a term. This was a pretty big one. Marriage equality, Obamacare saved again, death penalty saved again, EPA hammered down. Arizona uh, gets to keep its redistricting commissions. Yeah, the Texas, wonky Texas, sleeper Texas case can of the... have abortion clinics for a little, at least a little bit longer. Right. Justice Kennedy now there are now altars being set up to Justice Kennedy in downtowns in across land. the nation. But what? So is there a grand unified theory of this term? I guess I would say two things. Pragmatism won the day in the reading of statutes and even in the reading of the Constitution in some important cases. So we talked about that a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the Obamacare decision, King versus Burwell. But it kept happening, especially in this Arizona case. So to back up just for a second, this is a case that's really important for political power in this country because the court doesn't step in to prevent political gerrymandering. And so the idea that states can have these independent commissions is basically like the best hope that the voters have of having district lines that are not drawn entirely on partisan lines. There was a little problem, though, which was that Arizona passed its redistricting commission rules through voter initiative. And the Constitution says that the, quote, legislature controls the time, place, and manner of redistricting. Ginsburg wrote the opinion five to four. She needed and got Kennedy for this majority. And she basically read legislature in this historical way to say that it really is about a kind a state government that is not the executive and is not the federal government, that the point is to give power to the states. And if the voters choose to use that power through an initiative, that counts in the same way that traditional legislative lawmaking does. And Kennedy went along with that to the great outrage of the four conservatives, this time including Roberts, the author of the pragmatic King versus Burwell decision. 
And so you see here this kind of sensible mainstream outcome. And I feel like this was true basically about almost all the decisions, a lot of them informed by Justice Kennedy. Um, He voted with the liberals on the court. I think it's like 13 out of 19 times in five to four opinions. And basically all of the big cases, except for the death penalty in the EPA case, really came down on the liberal side. A couple times it was another conservative who they picked off like Thomas and the Confederate flag license plate case. But really, it was mostly Kennedy. And I don't think this means that Justice Kennedy is a liberal or even a moderate. He is a deeply conservative man in many ways, with the important carve out for gay marriage, where he is now like the gay marriage hero we were talking about. I also think it's important to remember that the court took cases that a more moderate centrist body of nine people would not have ever heard. So it only takes four votes on the court to decide to hear a case. And I think in you can see an overreach in some of their choices. The Obamacare case is one in which you imagine like, all right, well, maybe they should never have heard that case. And then we wouldn't view that as a liberal victory because it would never have come to the court. And I think there are other examples of that along the way. So this doesn't, to me, augur some longer term shift to the left for the court. But man, it was an important string of victories. So so Matt, where Emily is, Emily sees Oh, look what look, look, <laughs> look what I just Emily, added in there. <laughs> not not me. I have no stake in this. Go ahead. Uh, did you di- or not did you not just take your sweater off? Oh, I took off? my sweater off. I thought you were making fun of me for having added to the left. Yes, I no. took my sweater off cuz I was, you know, getting into my making my points. It's just like a emotional heat in here, not actual physical heat. Mm. So Matt, Emily is saying, "Oh, this is just, you know, common sense. This is not liberal liberal jurisprudence. This is common sense that is getting Justice Kennedy or Justice Thomas attached. Of course, this is not what the conservatives say. Do you buy that this is, you know, just rationality has triumphed again? Well, you know, I mean, the marriage ruling is yeah, obviously yeah. a real <laughs> exception to my liberal rule. Yes. ruling. Uh, but I do think, you know, on most of the cases, what you have is conservative plaintiffs really sort of trying to push the envelope. And you have liberals winning by the court in many cases saying, when well, no, we're not going to let you push the envelope. But that's different from a period, uh, you know, when you would have sort of crusading liberal justices right. pushing things forward. What you've mostly had in the Roberts court is conservative plaintiffs pushing the envelope and winning. We've now maybe reached the end of that line. I mean, conservatives have maybe already brought some of their best cases and won them already. Oh, and they have some more coming. Right, I mean, no, the abortion that, rights fight next year is going to be but isn't, big. Isn't Matt's point really good, which is that it used to be we had crusading liberal plaintiffs and that this is that what happened is that the Supreme Court sort of took a lot of cases that were brought by liberal now you're plaintiffs. Really going back and now you're going to the Warren Court. I mean, the, and the Rehnquist Court. Right. Right. But that now where legal innovation is coming is coming from the right. That the, that the legal policy innovation is from the right. And so they're finding all sorts of new kinds of arguments to make. Like the one we talked about with the the, te- the vote counting, how we're, how we're going to count. The one person, one vote. The one person, one vote, one is, vote yes. case. Yes. Like that is That's a kind a of example, example of, of really innovative conservative. Right. Uh, you're absolutely right that Public interest law and lawmaking and activism is coming just as much, if not more, from the right than from the left now. Yes, I think that's totally a good point. You know, the other thing to remember is that the mainstream business community was behind the important, quote, liberal wins, right? Totally behind the gay marriage ruling, which I also agree with you is actually like a big 
I mean, I actually had some wrestling to do myself with Kennedy's opinion, which for my taste didn't have enough like rigorous equal protection analysis and was like very grand and sweeping. Um, well, it seemed like he was relying on the fact that he, the polls are behind him yes. at this point. I mean, the, you're supposed the, to have more than that. Right. No, but I mean, <laughs> but the, the conservative dissenters had a lot of, oh, unelected judges, blah, 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 blah. But the fact of the matter is this had become a majority issue. So when Justice Kennedy is like, marriage is awesome, equality is great, let's do it, you know, most people like applaud. And there wasn't a lot of like law stuff in there. Yeah. Well, let's stick up for the law stuff for a minute, though, because it matters in the longer term. How I mean, what judges do that's different from the other bodies of government is to give reasons that are supposed to line up analytically. And there, I'm not saying there's none of that in Kennedy's opinion, but there could have been more. And, you know, that's his style as a justice, but I don't think it's going to I mean, it also means that the obvious route to other forms of anti-discrimination law for gay people in particular are not as obvious because he refused to do any of the traditional analysis that would lead you there, the whole like standards of scrutiny thing. I'm not a big fan, but ignoring it completely was perhaps odd. But they did some of that on the uh, Defense of Marriage Act case, didn't they? No. Well, he's never really said whether he thinks it should be a higher standard of scrutiny. Animus, his word in the past for anti-gay prejudice, was not to be found in Obergefell, although he did talk about stigma this time. But it leaves us in a slightly muddled position. Also, personally, I would—I mean, he relied on substantive due process, which is this very discredited line of analysis back from Lochner in the beginning of the 20th century that sort of has this— I love the way lawyers say Lochner, like it's a curse <laughs> like word. It's a, right, exactly. We all—right. I mean, this was one of Robert's points against Kennedy and dissent. And I also think—so the, the best defense of Kennedy, to my mind, is that part of a judge's role, the judiciary's role, and on the Supreme Court especially, is to stand up for minority rights. And this was a fundamental right at stake. I just wish he had backed that up with more analysis. And then there's another point which has to do with democracy and like how you make change regionally. Do you want to interrupt me before? I well, no, I on? just want to get, I mean, to that point, which is just to, just to get to what's actually happening on the ground. Do you think that is there going to be any meaningful resistance to these this particular ruling that will endure or, or is, is the little bits we're seeing out of Texas and Alabama just nothing. I think the religious liberty fight is going to go on and it is going to be a big fight in parts of the But the religious liberty fight is not you can't get married. It's people are going to be able to get married. You're talking about something else. Well, I mean, there are county clerks who are resigning from their positions or counties simply refusing to give out marriage licenses right now. No, that's a very like localized kind of resistance. But can't, counties are not going to not marry anyone. There is a county in Alabama that is not marrying anyone. No, no, but that's not going to last. Gonna last. Okay, fine. But I, I do think the religious liberties fight is a real fight. And the question about democratic process here, I don't think it's a winning argument, but I'm going to lay it out, is that the court didn't just overturn the laws of 13 or 14 states. It was actually more than half the states because a bunch of states had gotten gay marriage through federal court orders. That's a lot of states. And in particular, in these 14 or however many states where the polls are not in support of gay marriage, whether having the Supreme Court wave the wand and make it happen may not be the most effective form of social change in those places. Um, on the other hand, 
you're right about the polls, and they're moving really quickly more and more in favor of gay marriage. And the arguments against it have been, um, you know, mostly discredited. We're sort of left with theology right now. And people have deeply held religious beliefs, but that doesn't mean that they don't sometimes have to bend them. And so then the question becomes, like, how – what is the process for that unfolding? And what's the best strategy of gay rights advocates? Do you push every single landlord and baker who doesn't want to serve gay couples? Do you go just go sue their asses right now in court? Or do you give them some time to adjust? Do you guys think uh, – I'll start this with you, Matt – that looking back at this larger issue of all the cases the Supreme Court's case taking, that now that we've – We've done the Obamacare cases twice. The gay marriage stuff is all sorted out. That really, it's, the Supreme Court is just going to get back to sort of dreary helping out big business. Like there, that, that that the kind of big fun cases of this generation are sort of done, and that we don't really have that much to look forward to. Well, or there, or there, fun fights to look forward to. I think there's going to be at least one big fun immigration case. Uh, you know, coming down the pike. Over and, Obama's executive yeah, authority. Yeah, yeah, yes. exactly. Um, you know, which is going to be very big. People have a lot of strong feelings about that. And, and it's, I mean, it's really important to a lot of people. I also think, you know, you saw this, um, the EPA case was not the biggest decision in the world on its own terms, but the question of what can the EPA do yeah. and how does it have to yep. do it? And where does cost-benefit analysis exactly. happen? I mean, the- this is this is like a really big topic that there's going to be, I think, lots, lots more litigation around in sort of the next few terms. And one person, one vote is a big deal. And, you know, the court is probably going to have to review Texas's abortion law next term, which that is going to be a big case. It just will be. One last set of topics on this, Emily. For those of us who spectate the court, there was just a delightful amount of nastiness in the Most in the of it final week from Justice from Scalia, Justice but, Scalia, there but are some other from Sotomayor, yes. a bit from Sotomayor. Yes. You feel like Alito probably. Alito, Alito I Thomas. feel like is probably the the one who says the meanest things about everybody. Just when he's at home, he's just like constantly saying terrible things about people. He's supposed to be a very nice man, but don't go ahead. believe it. Do you think that the the meanness that appeared in some of the dissents reflects anything beyond just joy of rhetoric? I think Scalia is oh, – well, look, I've not spoken to him. I, he seems deeply frustrated to me. Linda Greenhouse, who covered the Supreme Court for so many years for The New York Times, said the other day that she can't think of a big victory he has had in, in terms of actually changing the law other than the gun rights decision, Heller, which you know found this individual right to bear arms in the Second Amendment. I'm not sure if that's right, but it's not – crazy and that and this term he's so lost in terms of how you read statutes and the constitution um there was this really important big choice and it was true about the Arizona case and it was true about King versus Burwell where do you have this do should judges just read the words in front of them in this fairly wooden myopic way or are they allowed to take into account context and consequences and he just lost that fight resoundingly I don't I mean I guess Alito and Thomas Thomas certainly agrees with him on that. But nobody else does. It is an outlier position. And he's been clearly exposed in that way. And so it seems to me that one thing that's revealing about his rhetoric is he has just given up on the idea of in any way trying to bring Roberts or Kennedy along on his agenda by playing nice. I mean, he played super mean with them. He said that, you know, the other four justices for having joined Kennedy's opinion based on one lofty sentence should have a, quote, paper bag over their heads. That is not something you write when you're trying to build coalitions. The Emily, there was a, a, a question from a listener, which you said you wanted to deal with, which was about who gets to write decisions. 
Yeah. So here's how this works. If you are the chief justice and you are in the majority, you assign who writes the opinion. You can take it for yourself. You can give it to anyone else in the majority. What if they don't want it? The other person? Yeah. Then they can say no and then you assign it to someone else. Oh, okay. I mean, I think there must be obviously some amount of just like someone has to write the Yeah, but what if, what if you're like – what if you're like you're, – you're, you just say no, I don't well, want that one. Well, if you are super slow and stall, that can be a way of getting yourself out of assignments by just basically like stonewalling and not doing your job. I don't – yeah, that's your, probably your best negotiating tactic, although it could backfire, right? If the chief is not in the majority, then the justice who is the most senior who is in the majority gets to decide who writes the opinion. Um, Sometimes that's Justice Kennedy. He can take it for himself. Sometimes that is Justice Ginsburg. She's the most senior of the four liberal moderates um, because Justice Breyer got his appointment like a few days or weeks or something after her. Sad for him. Yes. Before they write the decision, do they discuss the reasons why they're in the majority? Or do they, does the does this justice who's writing it just go ahead and write it and then everyone has to decide whether they're, they're going to sign on to all of it or write a concurrence? They have a conference. They talk about who's voting how and why. And, and then, why, not and just why. how. Yeah, although Roberts is very disciplined about these conferences, so they don't go on and on. And then whoever's writing just goes and writes. And sometimes what you think you're going to write changes. There's like a famous phrase, like the opinion didn't write. And then you have to find – like you think you are you had one set of analysis that was going to be get you where you wanted to go and it doesn't. Sometimes that you switch sides because of that. So there can be all kinds of changing of minds and massaging and thinking along the way. And one of the great things when we actually get to see the justices' papers, usually many, many years after the fact, is watching that process unfold. But they never have a, a moment in the conference where they're arguing it out. No, they do. They, yeah, I think they do. Are I mean, it's all secret, but yeah, they argue in conference. They just don't. They don't argue in a way where then they like write down on a blackboard. Okay, these are the three points, and now we all have to stick with them. They kind of give their current positions at that moment, and then at, in the writing of the opinions, they can move around. Do you think that you know Justice Ginsburg and Justice Alito? You know, they have lunch and they sort of debate the, no. the merits of a case. No, no. I think that. There is not – my sense is there is not very much communication among the justices right now about their positions, that they communicate with each other mostly through their clerks and by fax. Fax, No, they don't. No, they don't. They still fax to each other apparently. No, they don't. It's more secure. No, it's just super old-fashioned and crazy. Also, they work in the same building. Yes. That's I, true. I mean, they have some social relationships. Like, you know, Ginsburg and Scalia had a whole opera written about them or play about how they go to the opera together. But I don't think there's a lot of outside of conference very much. And I could be wrong. It may be that this is happening. I just haven't heard about it. But And particularly, I don't think there's a lot of intellectual exchange across ideological lines going on. Wow. All right. We'll check back with you in October okay. when we've got some new cases. You can you can come I'll on the show before. I'll go on vacation till then. Just like the justices. I cannot believe how much time they take off. I, that to me is ridiculous. They're doing other things. What? They're in Europe. I don't know. They have yeah, they're work. doing junkets and stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. The, although they it's can't get paid time. for that stuff, right? Um, No, they can get some money. They can get some money. Not like they can't get paid to go give a speech to, you know, the the car convention. But they can – well, they can certainly get expenses and a really nice vacation. I can't remember if they can actually get paid honoraria. But they have to disclose everything. How about Mm. that? 
The GabFest is sponsored this week by Sundance Now Doc Club, which is a new streaming service for anyone who loves documentaries. If you, like me, love real stories and real people in extraordinary situations, you will love the Sundance Now Doc Club. It brings the human voice back to movie recommendations. Unlike other services, the documentary films in the Doc Club are handpicked by expert programmers with unique perspectives, like me, I handpicked, or by cultural icons like Ira Glass or Susan Sarandon, maybe Matt Iglesias. I would like Matt Iglesias' picks one of these days. And the library of documentaries includes great stories of all kinds, crime, history, politics, music, sex. And as a Sundance Now Doc Club member, you will also get exclusive benefits, including free movie tickets, access to film festivals, award shows, and more. So uh, I was asked to recommend one of the movies in the Doc Club. And so one that I saw, which actually I didn't love as like a pleasurable experience because I, in fact, loathed the main character. But it was such a it was so interesting to watch is No Impact Man. Have you guys seen that documentary? It's about a guy who decides to He's going to make his family have no carbon footprint for a year. And he's just kind of unbearable. But it's a really interesting sort of intellectual exercise. Uh, and it's it's totally worth seeing. And it's, it's pretty short, too. So our GabFest members, you can get a 30-day free trial in Sundance Now Doc Club. And you can do that at docclub.com slash GabFest. That's D-O-C-C-L-U-B dot com slash GabFest. Greece. Matt Iglesias. Greece. It's awesome. So it's, it doesn't uh, sound it's so Thursday awesome afternoon. right now. It sounds like a mess. There was a great story somewhere about uh, the description. It's like, oh, if you go to Athens, if people are sitting in cafes, it's still beautiful. Like they're just hanging They've out. They've never heard of But they, they were pointing out like, That's oh, the person thing. sitting in the cafe is like the 20-year-old who's unemployed, who has nothing else to do, or the person who's lost their pension and is nursing <sighs> this one beer for seven hours because that's all he can afford. So Emily and I are stupid. Particularly, no, explain about explain this. to us what me. is going on in Greece and whether we should care. Well, last week, uh, over the weekend rather, Greece uh, missed a payment it owes to the International Monetary Fund, and in and of itself, that's not that significant. But there's political consequences for it from the other European countries who have said that they would cut off uh, the Bank of Greece's access to the larger European banking system if that happened. Uh, so that has happened. And now to keep some euros inside the country, the government of Greece has had to sharply limit people's ability to withdraw money from ATMs, to use their debit or credit cards to buy foreign goods. And basically, they're not they're saying that they're paying civil servants and pensioners and things like that. But what they're doing is they're making electronic deposits into their bank accounts. Which they then cannot access. Right. But you can't actually get the money money. out of it um, because the government of Greece has no more money left and they can't do anything. So late in the week, it sounded like they were going to cave. The government of Greece, that is. Yes. And make a deal. Yes, no. There has been a lot of back and forth. I mean, this has been going on for months. A a new government came to power in January saying that they were going to break up these old austerity arrangements and get a better deal from Europe. Uh, But they keep not being able to get a better deal from Europe because they don't have any leverage. And so then there keep being moments when it looks like, well, they're going to cave in entirely and then they back away. Or it looks like maybe Germany will make a small concession, but then it falls apart. Uh, So we had just yesterday... In the morning, the European morning, uh, it looked like Greece was going to cave after all. But then by the U.S. morning, they were already backing down. Um, 
And they're about to have a vote or a referendum about whether to keep yeah. it or not. Yeah, so they're right? supposed to have a referendum, uh, yes or no, on whether or not to accept the last offer that they got from the European authorities. And it, it's very strange, though, because the people who made the offer say it's not on the table anymore, that that was something Greece was supposed to do before defaulting on its payments. Um, but now that they've defaulted, there's even less trust um, in the sort of European governments from the other institutions they're dealing with. So it's totally unclear what either a yes or a no vote is going to have. Um, but the Greek government probably can't keep operating with no money on a sort of indefinite basis. To take us back further. So this is the Greece. Uh, this has been a long time coming. So since 2009, we've been talking about Greece. Greece's collapse or Greece getting out Every of day we've been the, talking about it at my The house. European, the common <laughs> currency. So so what happened? How, how is it that Greece ends up with hundreds of billions of dollars in debts that it cannot pay? And what were they forced to do to try to make up for that? Okay, so it goes going way back. It used to be that Greece was considered a very risky country to lend money to uh, because Greece had sort of a unsound governance, bad economic policy. So people thought uh, Greek currency was going to go down in value, that Greece was going to have a lot of inflation. So the interest rate charge there was very, very high. Uh, Then Greece joins the euro in 2001. So there's no chance of the Greek currency devaluing. And suddenly people get, the international community gets just really enthusiastic about lending Greece money. And they get the exact same interest rate charged as they charge Germany or Denmark or these other sort of sensible Northern European countries. So the Greek government goes on like a a borrowing party. Uh, They spend a lot on defense to say, okay, we're going to finally get an edge on Turkey. They lower the retirement age down to French levels. Um, they Is that like 40 or 41? It's like, yeah, it's like 13, something like that. I, I think it's 60. Um, they um, And they, they're not really collecting taxes. So they have about the same tax level as the United States, but the same kind of welfare state as like France or Denmark. And no one actually pays their taxes in Greece, whereas we pay our taxes. Well, no, right? no. I'm saying what gets paid oh, is okay. about, about what gets paid. Oh, really? Yes. I thought they were all scoff laws. Well, they are, but the tax rates would be... They're still only paying half what they're supposed to pay. Yeah, there's okay. like a really high rate that you don't pay, and then you know you pay people come in. Something. Yeah, okay. exactly. So they racked up enormous debts, and then comes 2008, housing bust in the U.S., financial crisis, and suddenly everyone around the world reassesses, you know, what risks they're exposed to, and a bunch of banks find out, oh shit, we like we loaned all this money to Greece. Um, they can't possibly pay this. So now it gets really dicey. Greece needs to roll its debts over sort of year after year, issue new bonds to pay off the old ones, and people start charging a higher and higher interest rate. So then with the higher interest rate, it's harder for them to pay the debts. It looks like things are going to spiral out of control. They're not going to be able to pay. There's going to be some kind of chaos. And other European governments step in. And they say, rather than letting Greece default on all these bonds... Other European governments are going to loan Greece a ton of money, and they're going to use that money to pay off their old debts. And now they'll have this new debt, which is owed to Germany, European Central Bank, International Monetary Fund, some other European countries. So this was described at the time as like a, as a quote-unquote bailout, um, except in a real bailout like American banks got, they just kind of give you the money. You don't have to pay it back. Yeah, but this wasn't a gift. In theory, Greece has to pay it back. 
But Greece can't pay it back. Well, if they took a lot of austerity measures, they'd be able to start paying Well, back, except right? then the economy shrinks. Well, right. maybe, economy... but didn't Ireland and Latvia have this similar problem? It was, and then do make it the was cuts similar, and but, uh, but a much smaller scale. Uh-huh. So the, the Greek debts were about twice as big as anybody else's relative to the number of people there. And there was just no way to pay them off. But that was okay. But what other European governments got was they knew they couldn't really ever get their money back. But if every year Greece had to sort of negotiate an extension of the loan package, they can kind of boss Greece around and say, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that. So at least they're not continuing to way overspend versus exactly. coming in. So they, they cut their spending enormously, uh, much more than any other country. It totally devastated their economy. But what they haven't managed to do is any of these, like, quote-unquote reforms that would supposedly make Greece, like, a richer, better economy. Because uh, it turns out it's, like, it's really difficult to go from a corrupt civil service to a super effective one, to go from a society in which people brag about how much they're cheating on their taxes to one in which, like, you're supposed to pay. Um, and Greek governments have not been all that interested in, in doing it. But they were going along the path that Europe laid out for them. And it became very unpopular. So this new government came in in January, said they were going to blow things up. I think they thought they were going to get a lot of support from other European political parties, that Italians and Spanish and maybe the the French, which has a left-wing government, were going to all say, oh, yeah, these guys are right. You know, we've read these Paul Krugman columns. Uh, we got to change it up. <laughs> Austerity is really bad, yeah, even and, if you're Greece. And that is not what they have said. They're, they've got no support from anyone. So they've been drawing dead for months. So explain, because I, I really like this when people do this. We have in the United States, we have states which are economically much less productive than other states that yes. that are, you know, that are more corrupt, that where, where if they were individual countries that people would be much poorer. But there's never a situation where Mississippi is going Alaska. to, is going to be, right. you know, is going to be in default because the United States you know, won't support it. What? How, what is it? We're a country, what, and they're yeah, not. No, but that, but it's a really interesting question about why is it they they have a common currency? It's like it seems like oh, it's a common currency. It's sort of a common economy. Why isn't it? Why isn't Greece like Mississippi? I love it, these explanations. Yeah. It's really helpful to me when I, I hear I'll, this explanation. I'll seed the floor to Matt. Yeah. Well, you know, so in the United States, obviously, we have an income tax, a progressive income tax. So if you're richer, you pay more. And we also have a, a welfare state. You know, we have Medicaid. We have uh, assistance to poor school districts, things like that. So that's not like laid out as, well, Maryland is going to give money to Mississippi, but there's a lot of rich people living in Maryland, living in California, living in New York, and they pay a lot of taxes. And there's a lot of poor people living in Mississippi, and they get a lot of uh, social service benefits. And then you have the retirement system, Social Security and Medicare, which exists sort of everywhere all throughout the country. We all sort of pool our money and then support elderly people equally. But that advantages poorer states over richer ones. If each state had to have its own retirement system, California could have a pretty generous one. Alabama would have a really stingy one. But we equalize it. Europe, individual European countries have usually more generous welfare states than the United States, but they don't cross each other's borders. So Germany's welfare state supports poor and middle-class German people. And a middle-class German person would be rich in Greece. They don't support poor. And also the Greeks. banks. So we also have nationalized bank insurance. So like a Greek 
So an American a bank in Mississippi is supported by right. When a, a local bank fails, it's supported by a national risk pool. Um, and you know that's the the federal government does a lot of stuff in the United States. The European Union does a lot of significant regulatory activity, but it doesn't spend very much money, and it doesn't it hasn't historically unified the banking systems. So is Greece taking advantage of a weakness in the? European Union system, which was sort of inevitable that one country was going to try to get away with this. And now, and and then what? Like, if that makes any sense, then, I mean, I guess we don't know how this resolves. But I guess then I wonder, like, oh, well, is this the, the sore point that then gets resolved? The whole thing hangs together. The EU marches on. They have a different system than ours, but it's still tenable. Or if Greece... Exits, then does that mean that the whole system falls apart or like just is exposed as being more vulnerable than? I mean, I think that's very much the view that the main European leaders take is that, you know, they would say, look, Greece was cheating. They weren't supposed to borrow that much money. They went with American investment banks to sort of disguise the extent of the loans they were taking out. And they've been suffering a lot and we sort of feel bad for them, but it's their own fault. And if they leave, you know, we'll be better off without them. I think a few years ago, one of the ironies of the situation is that back five years ago when they originally did this bailout, there could have been real chaos if if Greece had left. It could have had huge problems for Portugal, for Ireland, for all these other countries. Because they were all more vulnerable at the time, you mean? Well, because people didn't know the full details of the situation. They knew, well, there's richer countries, there's poorer countries, and you could have had a lot of confusion. In the intervening five years, there's been a lot of time for everyone to sort of get organized, to recognize how much of an outlier Greece is, to have other people, like you mentioned, Ireland has really sort of gotten with the program, and they're still uh, suffering a lot from budget cuts there, but the unemployment rate is down, the economy is growing. So I think people have confidence that, you know, Greece could be obliterated with no real consequences for anyone else. Um, If Greece were a country with its own currency, it would just devalue its currency you know, people, they would get more tourists there, it would be cheaper to do business there. Yeah, and they they, they would have a lot of inflation. Right. But they can't do that. Right. Because they're not but the, if they leave, they can do that. Right. And the thing is, is that the the weird thing about the referendum is that everyone who looks at it from the outside says, well, if they vote no, they have to leave the euro. Because what else are they going to do, right? They're out. They Literally, they have no money. So they could say, well, we're going to print our own money, right? That's what governments do. But they can't print their own euro. That would be right. awesome. Could they print euro? What would they? Well, they could try. That would, that would be so cool. You, you know what? Look like where are the euro plants? Would I mean, it is. Like, I bet the euro plants are in Germany somewhere. <laughs> right. somewhere. Presumably, they're not in the heart of Athens. Yeah, I think I think the the printing presses are all in Frankfurt. But um, you know, the point is the the Greek government though is not saying. We'll vote no and we'll leave the euro. They're saying vote no and we're going to get a better deal. Right. Vote no and it'll strengthen our hand. Yeah. It seems so like uh, uh, on left field to me. And it just it seems like are they a little deluded about whether they really have any leverage? But this is where, you know, it's it's hard to know. Are they deluded? Or are they, they lying? Are they desperate? The thing is, this is a political party that a few years ago was super marginal. It was a far left-wing protest party. They had splintered from the Greek Communist Party and were, you know, they were like on the margin of the margins. And they have a couple very charismatic, very clever leaders, and they've had a very bad situation in Greece. And they've sort of grown like wildfire, but they never had the kind of 
training wheels experience that a political party normally gets where you're, you know, mayor of an important city or junior partners in a coalition government. Uh, the guy, their finance minister is a, is a well-regarded, internationally known economist. But, you know, three years ago, people knew him for his blog and is super interesting. Could be you. It's like it as could if be it you. was you. It's thematically, it's your story. I Absolutely. expect you to be yeah. secretary of treasury. The dream. Uh, but, you know, he never held a government position before so that's not super great they could just be messing up you know there may not be a genius or devious strategy all right last question about greece why should americans care I don't really know. Our banks hold some of the debt. Yeah, they but it's do. so little. It's it, not that it, much money. It doesn't matter that much, practically. I mean, I think the main practical impact for an American is there's probably going to be some cheap vacation opportunities. Um, it's mostly just a sort of fascinating human drama. I don't know. The European project is a really interesting idea, and to see it fall apart is like kind of I sad. Think, I think the important thing is for us to feel a sense of moral su- superiority to the Southern Europeans and like the sense that they're so lazy. The and, important and thing? That they, what do you mean? Like, well, that, that really is what, that's what that's gets what people is, so satisfied is oh. that, oh, those Greeks, they're so, you know, why aren't they disciplined? Why are they always cheating? They deserve the punishment that, that's coming to them because they only work six hours a week and and then sit in coffee shops. And so I think people get real they satisfaction They wrote some really important that. epic poetry, but oh, that was many Yeah, it was many years ago. ago. Um, and the Germans and the, you know, let's, the very solid Germans. The Germans are so solid. They we are should, solid. We should, we should support them. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. The GapFest is also sponsored this week by Zip Recruiter. Are you hiring but not sure where to find the best candidates? That has been a situation I have been in. Your company is only as good as the people you hire. And posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. But when you're short-staffed, there isn't time to deal with dozens of different job sites until now. Thanks to ZipRecruiter.com, you can post to 100-plus job sites with a single click. Just post once, and within 24 hours, watch your candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. Plus, you can be instantly matched to candidates from over 4 million resumes. ZipRecruiter has been used by more than 400,000 businesses, and you can try it right now for free. Try ZipRecruiter and get your perfect candidate before they go to somebody else. So go to ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest to try it for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. Oh, so much stuff happened to Donald Trump this week. It was such a good week for him. Do you think Donald Trump thought this is a great week for me? I do. He probably did. He was on TV a lot. And he's number two in the polls. Now. He's number two in the polls. So he got fired by Macy's. He his uh, he got Univision dropped uh, broadcasting the Miss Universe contest. He was fired as the host of Celebrity Apprentice, although I guess he still owns some of it. it and it all st- sort of stems originally stems from derogatory comments he made about Mexican immigrants. Saying, really disgusting comments. Saying yeah that the Mexican Mexico was sending its rapists, killers, and drug dealers to America. That that's that's who was was coming. But as you say, Matt, his poll numbers are up. Why did this get him in trouble? I mean, he's been saying appalling things for a long time. He was he was the birther in chief, for God's sakes. Why would why would this particular set of nasty, racist things that he said be the ones that lose him his TV shows? I mean, I think that all Mexican immigrants are a less acceptable target than President Obama, even if he was saying outrageous things before about Obama. But truthfully, I am discussing this under protest. I hate that Trump ends up getting airtime. I know it's a fun topic, but I can't answer your question because I am too high-minded. I did. I am too high-minded to follow the racism and general vile um, 
expletives coming out of Donald Trump's mouth. All right, Matt, you and I can have this conversation. Why, why has <laughs> it think, helped him? Why has it helped him? Do you think? Well, you know, I think I think it's sort of two sides of the same coin, though. I think you see with Trump uh, losing these contracts with TV networks. I think you see with the turning against the Confederate flag recently that sort of the weight of purchasing power and public sentiment in the United States is shifting in a more, you know, sort of anti-racist direction. Don't you think social media must I ha- thought you weren't talking. I didn't say that. Social media, absolutely. Well, just that the business, like businesses, can see how outraged people are and then respond to it much more. There's a lot more sensitivity. Yeah. To all well, that. and also, I mean, you don't. I don't think you hear about this a lot, but uh, studies I've seen show that that blacks and Latinos use Twitter disproportionately yes, compared to white that's people. True. So social media actually amplifies minority voices uh, louder than you would ordinarily expect, and so brands and politicians. Have become a little bit more aware of what's being said in those communities. At the same time, I mean, I do think you have a, a lot of people in the United States who subscribe to a sort of, you know, traditional backlash sort of view. And the more Trump gets in trouble for pushing the envelope and, you know, quote unquote, speaking the real truth, like some people rally around him and say, well, it's not just some. I mean, it is a he rep his views are not totally discordant with the views of most Republicans. No, like, that's not true. Most, These most Republicans are not... have very, very, very anti-immigrant sentiment. I don't think that they have racist anti-immigrant sentiment. Hmm. Meh. Oh, yeah. come on. Don't you think? I mean, I feel like Trump is a measure of the percentage of the country that is truly out there on the right in a conspiracy-minded, like, ugly way. And I don't want to think that is most of the Republicans. I don't want to think that's... Well, it's not most of it, but it's, you know... You you just said most Republicans. I think most Republicans have very dim views about immigration. Yes. But there are different ways to have dim views of immigration. And he is is one way. And let's hope there are not that many... I mean, look, his rising support in the polls suggests... But still, it's a fraction of a fraction that we're talking about. Right. It's not most people... But it's a lot of people and it's a lot of Republicans. And I think, you know, not that many people believe that Mexico is like literally sending all of its murderers and rapists to the United States. But I think we just stop to say that there are very few immigrants who come here and commit truly serious violent crimes. That has been a problem for the Obama administration, which would like to be only deporting seriously violent criminals or at least prioritizing that. And there just are not very many many of them. Yes. Sorry. Just had to get that Um, on the chest. But I do think a lot of people, I think there's a widely held view, and it's, I think, very wrongheaded, but I think a widely held view that a big social problem in America is that white people are excessively censored in speaking the truth about racial and ethnic minorities. I think that's something a lot of people think, that, quote unquote, political correctness is out of control, and it's a huge problem, and that people like Donald Trump, who, you know, Quote unquote, speak the truth. truth. Right. You know, that that, that this is like, that this is important. And then the more the liberals condemn him, the more clear it is that we. We should, right, that, that we should stand up, or at that least there's this media elite here. that is, you know, silencing people, and that Trump, at least through his vast real estate wealth, you know, can't be silenced, and that that's admirable. Don't you feel though that if Donald Trump is your version of speaking the truth, both in the substance, the ridiculous substance of what he says, and also just the buffoon that he is. Like, you're in big trouble if that's where speaking truth to power gets you. Yeah, I mean, I think the sort of old racist crank group of Americans is not in great shape at the moment. But So if you're Jeb Bush, you are loving this because this is just 
pounding down everybody who so it's so Trump's doing well, but it's pounding down all the sort of second tier candidates it's who now cannot get a hearing. For someone like Ted Cruz. So t- think, well, Ted right? Cruz, yeah, Ted Cruz, a Jindal, a, a, a Rubio, a Walker, who suddenly has they have much less of a platform. Um, and also, they can't what, afford to put the same daylight between so, themselves and Trump, but they also don't. He's like radioactive I mean, in some ways too, right? It's Walker, I think, who really like. Walker is the governor of a real state. He's been elected three times in Wisconsin. He's like a super credible. He could really be a presidential nominee. He could win. He is genuinely more conservative than Jeb Bush, but he's a little boring. So anytime someone with more razzmatazz like Trump gets in the headlines, it helps Jeb because it prevents Scott Walker from saying – Hey, guys, if you want like a real electable, respectable candidate who is more conservative than Jeb Bush, I'm right here. So who so if you're a Rubio or Walker and you're having this problem, they seem to be the two who are suffering the most from this. What do you do? How do you wait for it to burn out? I mean, this is like it cannot last as a sustained. So you can't go after you don't go after Trump. You don't bother to do that because that. I mean, I wish they would, but I don't think they would have. I think it would be dangerous for a little risk, dangerous, a strong politically risky for them to go after him. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to assume Trump will burn out and you got to keep just doing your own thing. What if he doesn't? Yeah, I don't know. Crazy times. Well, that would shake things up in an interesting way. I mean, it's a real shame because there is this. These Republican candidates are, I mean, I don't agree with anything they say, but they are smart. They And lo- and yet, who did you want to talk about this week? Donald Trump. It's a real shame, which we are now also Which I'm part contributing of. to because he's, Donald Trump is, is part of the, Hat-nip. you know, he's making it the most interesting, he's saying the most interesting things. He's absorbing all the energy. I mean, I, tell me, tell me what you want to talk about, about Scott Walker. What, is so what did exactly he do this that you week? want to say about Scott Walker? Well, actually, Scott Walker called for a constitutional amendment that would allow states to ban gay marriage. And I was surprised he took that stance because if you think of him Can as like... we talk like... about Trump now? <laughs> what? I think that that constitutional <laughs> amendment probably won't happen. Really? Yeah. You think so? I mean, that's but a more ridiculous... That's honestly a more ridiculous thing to say than that Mexico's sending a bunch of rapists over here or that they're going to build a wall to keep out Mexicans. Honestly, that is, amendment is, is less relevant less is less relevant to the actual political debate in this country than I what Trump is saying. I wanted to know why it was a politically astute thing for someone to say when he's trying to be the Koch brothers guy. Like the Koch brothers cannot be excited about that. Is that just like that's okay because that's the thing he's doing to show his right wing bona fides? Because it's cheap talk, right? I mean, he didn't promise anything that could then possibly happen. Okay. But what, so literally, what is going to – how will this if, – if the campaign turns out to be just Trump taking all this oxygen, like what kind of campaign are we going to have? We have 16 candidates out there. What, how are they going to – how are we going to decide? How are Republican voters going to get any – form any opinion? What's going to happen if, if the conversation is all Trump? I don't well, you get know, it. I do think this is where – you know, I've been on this sort of Iowa, New Hampshire bashing bandwagon for years. But where you do see a real virtue to it. These are small states. You don't need a ton of money to campaign in them. What you do need is to be, like, really patient about the annoying work of showing up in all kinds of diners all across Iowa. Scott state Wa- fairs. Don't forget the state fairs, Absolutely. Matt. Scott Walker is going to do that. Like he's a really serious politician. You think Donald Trump's life is winning elections? Well, this is good. So, so you're saying it's the retail. The retail work is going to make the difference. That because there's so many candidates, and because like Trump is absorbed, Trump is creating so much hot air, and there isn't there's there's not other kind of 
debate and discussion that's happening that what the retail work is going to make the difference. Yeah, that it's going to be able to let people get a chance to, you know, connect to voters and People know the difference, particularly people in these states where they see presidential candidates all the time. They know the difference between a real political contender and a guy with a television show, okay. I think. So two two questions. One, is Trump actually going to run? Because he has to file papers and he's got to do financial disclosures. Yes, Will he actually run? Yes, because he'll want to go to the debates. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. What Will- do you think? Yeah, I think he will because he, only, he wants to go to the debates. Will So the debates which are going to be – the debates are pretty soon, aren't they? So he'll definitely be – high enough in the polls. Will Donald Trump be a candidate, you know, after there have been two, after Iowa and New Hampshire? Uh, I don't know. No. Plots? I don't know. I don't know. Doesn't seem wild to me that he would be still up there in the top 10. How many people get to keep going after Iowa and New Hampshire? Five, six? 10. I mean, when we've talked about this previously, I believe someone who knows more about this than me, you or John, has said, well, you know, it's pretty cheap to keep it going. And like, why not? Yeah. Well, and for him, I mean, he could certainly keep it going. Right. That's for sure. Right. If you're self-funded, why drop out? I guess he could get bored. That just seems to be like, who can predict that? Because it's about his own fecklessness or or seriousness. Seriousness. The GapFest is sponsored this week also by TrunkClub.com. When it comes to clothing, men all over the world agree on two simple facts. One, let's see if you and I agree on this, Matt. One, when you look great, you feel even better. Sure. I kind of agree with that. Yeah, that's true. Two, the time it takes to actually shop for, find, and buy those great-looking clothes absolutely sucks. I definitely agree with that. Why is this just men? I feel I will totally sign up for both of those things. Well, yeah, it's, not, it's I don't, all true. Trunk Club gets it, and that's why they've taken the pain out of finding great-looking clothes by shipping you a trunk of clothes that fit perfectly and make you look amazing. At trunkclub.com slash gabfest, you answer a few simple questions about your look, style, and size, and you're assigned an expert who will handpick clothes that are just right for you. After getting to know you and your preferences, your stylist will email you their recommendations curated from only the best premium brands. You approve what you like, and boom, a trunk full of great clothes handpicked just for you arrives at your door. Like mine arrived a few days ago. I had a really good conversation with my stylist. It was very, very fun. Try them on. Keep what you want. Send back what you don't in the prepaid trunk. That's it. It is the easiest way to refresh your wardrobe for the spring or the summer or this fall. Your stylist, the shopping, the trunk, and even the shipping are all 100% free when you go to trunkclub.com slash gabfest. You'll only pay for the clothes you keep. There's no ongoing subscription. There are no hidden charges. Just great clothes handpicked for you. I am not wearing the jeans that I got, but I got some great jeans, which I will be wearing. Right now, it is completely free, so get started at trunkclub.com slash gabfest. That's trunkclub.com slash gabfest. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're Donald Trump and you're alone, you don't have anything to do except play golf. You're sitting at the 19th hole at one of your many golf clubs, and Matt Iglesias comes along. What is Matt Iglesias going to tell Donald Trump at that moment? Instead of running for president, he should try to, like, buy part of Greece, I think. You That's know? your cocktail chatter? That's a good idea. Yeah. Huh. Get, huh. Like, Which part? Like, the ruins? No, like, some nice islands, oh, you know? Yeah. Like, they need money. He wants to be president of something. They should work something out. Huh. So the secret of Trump is he doesn't actually have that much money. He always, well, he, he, he doesn't have enough to bail out Greece. Well, he knows sure. how to get loans, and he's got everything they need. <laughs> Which they island? Get, I've never been they to They should the get Greek him islands. to negotiate it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Maybe he should be finance minister. Huh. He could work something out with, you know, they could legalize gambling. And, you know, he, he knows things. 
All right. Is that your cocktail chatter? That was good. I think so. That was unusual. All right, Emily, what's your cocktail chatter? I want to begin by saying a thank you to a bunch of listeners who wrote into us about growing up in the white South or growing up as white Southerners with Southern heritage about the different ways they have complicated their sense of identity given the legacy of slavery and racism and Jim Crow. It was really interesting to read. So thank you for sending those emails. My chatter is about the book I am reading right now, which is so good. It's called Concussion. It's by Jean Marie Laskus. It's about Dr. Bennett Omalu, who is um, – the doctor who got into a big tangle with the NFL over concussions. He was performing autopsies as a pathologist. And it's just a great story. It's actually going to be a movie right after it's a book, like a movie that's already in the works because this book is based on a GQ article that Laskus wrote. I think the movie's coming out in the winter and Will Smith is starring in it. But the book is terrific and comes out, I believe, in October. Concussion by Jean-Marie Laskus. You should look for it. Great story. My chatter is about Sir Nicholas Winton, who died this week. I defy you to read a obituary about Nicholas Winton and not weep. He led an incredible life. He was a young, he died at age 106, so he was born, it must have been 1909. So at the in the late 1930s, he was a young British stockbroker. He was of, his parents had been Jewish, but he was not himself Jewish. Um, they had converted, and he was he was vacationing in Europe. And a friend of his said, "You know, you should get to Prague. There's some really terrible things going on. It seems like it could help out." And so he gave up. He sort of left his ski vacation, went to Prague, and discovered that there were all these uh, Jews who were trying to get out of of Czechoslovakia before the Nazi crackdown really started. And he made it his mission to get Jewish children out of Prague, and got you know he forged traveling papers. He bribed Gestapo. He did everything in his power. And he got seven or he got eight trainloads of Jewish children out of Prague before the war started and saved 700 lives. One of the trains actually was diverted. As the war started, it was captured and none of those children were ever heard from again. And the children escaped and were taken in in Britain. And almost every one of their their parents died. So they, they were effectively, almost every single one of them was orphaned and presumably would have died. And they're now, I think, 6,000 descendants of the Winton children. What was amazing to me about Winton's life is that he never talked about it. Like, nobody knew his story. It was only his wife in the late 1980s sort of found some documents that he'd kept and asked him about. It. And he was like, oh, no, just throw those away. And she, she sort of didn't throw them away and kept looking and realized he had done this. That's so crazy. Why, and, do you think? I don't know. He just I think he just felt it was the I don't know. I'm not I'm not I'm not sure why he why he didn't toot his own horn. He just didn't. And but at that point he was recognized and he was knighted and uh, and he led an otherwise exemplary life. He led a life also where he he you know he led a life of service and he just there's an incredible video up that was making the rounds on YouTube of him meeting some of the children in the late 1980s and who he hadn't seen obviously he hadn't seen for 50 years. Uh, it's just Incredible life. Read about him. Wonderful, wonderful story. Nicholas Winton. Our intern is Tarek Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And the Gabfest is, of course, part of the Panoply Network. And you can check out the entire roster of Panoply podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash Gabfest. It has links to what we talked about today. Facebook, Facebook.com slash Gabfest. Twitter is at Slate Gabfest. And please subscribe to the GabFest and iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. That really helps us. 
for Emily Bazelon and Matt Iglesias of Vox. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for sitting in, Matt. It's great to have you really come back anytime. Thank you. We will talk to you next week. John will be back. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>